Some of us find meaning in creation, of building things that have never existed before, be they made of words, or pigment, or wood. Some of us find meaning in exploration and discovery, of finding new places, or new ways of looking at known places, of looking so close or so far that we see things that have not been seen before. Some of us find meaning in healing, in touch and insight that results in betterment, which allows the person on the receiving end to become more functional. Others in helping in other ways or in elucidating, in teaching, for instance. Others in communication or interpretation, in building teams or in leading them. Heather E. Haying, Evolutionary Biologist. Welcome to the Lost Traveler podcast. I'm your host, Henry Cameron Allen. And uh, I'm so excited to be launching season three of the Lost Traveler podcast with this very special guest. Uh, this is actually the first conversation we've ever had. We, uh, we met as one does through social media and our paths found one another. And I thought, wow, this would be a great conversation. Um, Crystal Mason Chan, did I pronounce it correctly? Yes, you did. Mason, yes. Mason, and you are uh, based in Chicago. Uh, Crystal is an author. Uh, she has two books for children, Bird, published in 2014, and All That I Can Fix, published in 2018, if I'm not incorrect. And um, she's also a diversity speaker, a race and compassion activist, a teacher, a haiku poet, which I love your poetry. I'm going to put all the links in the description. Um, and you're the leader of a, um, a series of virtual, how, what would you call them? Restorative personal growth retreats. I know you have one coming up for teachers specifically. Um, but anyway, welcome. We're going to get into all of that and more. Uh, welcome so very much to the podcast. I'm thrilled to have you here as a guest. Thank you, Henry Carmen. It's a wonderful to be here. Thank you. So tell me about your, your retreats um, first. That, that seems really fascinating. And where, where did, uh, how long have you been doing them? And, and what is the impulse behind this one that is specifically for teachers? Sure, sure. So as of right now, I am currently taking registrations for teachers, for exhausted teachers um, who are tired, weary, burned out, um, one or all of the above. Um, and basically, it's it's a retreat where they can uh, claim their joy, process their grief, and also like get in touch with their growth in these really tumultuous times. As we know, teachers are leaving the profession in droves, um, and the ones who aren't leaving are just like at the end of their ropes. Um, and so this is a restorative retreat for them to give them some space to even come back to what they're actually feeling and thinking. Um, 
gaslighting is terrible. Like, oh, everything is fine now. The pandemic is over, right? You know, and when people are still dealing with their losses of, of life and loved ones and huge things. And so this is a time for them to really hear their own voice um, in a way that's supportive. Um, and they will be hopping into breakout groups and, and really getting a lot of that deep listening and deep receptivity from other teachers. I've done this with adults just in general and to amazing effect. People have come processing multiple deaths in their family from COVID. This started in COVID, this started in COVID and this started with my own processing of uh, all of all of the things that I've been walking through. I lost my 15 year day job because I was a retreat planner uh, at a retreat house. Well, that's a conference center. And so that was the first thing to get cut, you know, right. in the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, that was my stable day job as an artist and lots of other things. And so I was just reeling and um, and it's basically this format where you just free form, write out uh, everything that comes out. Uh, and the questions are, uh, what have you lost? How have you grown? And what have been your strange joys in this time? And so, and from those three prompts, and you can do whatever you want in your, in your writing time. Uh, and, and really, you really plumb the, the subconscious and kind of like these deeper levels of the heart, mind, spirit, uh, and really start to hear what's really going on, your true voice, the truth of your, of your voice and what you're looking for and what you want. Um, and then I help people whittle it down so that basically, I mean, you mentioned haiku, basically by the end of this three-hour virtual retreat, people walk away with something as short as a haiku of their truth in these times. So my friend likes to call it, you know, what we, what we all go through and psychologists have their own terms for, um, you know, like the overwhelm and the shutdown, the disassociation. My friend calls it the scrambled eggs of the brain. She's like, oh my God, my, my brain is so scrambled eggs. Like you can't even think you can't even. So this type of a writing uh, workshop uh, is meant to actually like, clarify the scrambled eggs of the brain so that you are sitting with a, a very clear, concise haiku of your own words from your own gut sense um, of where you're at right now and what you want. Uh, it's very uh, this, clarifying. This is available to teachers anywhere, right? Yeah. Virtual yeah. retreat. Anywhere virtual retreat, world. June 11. Yep. And for we have listeners now in 34 countries around the world. Come on over. <laughs> really important that that yeah. is accessible. Um, can you explain for those of our listeners who may not be familiar with the form of poetry called haiku, uh, what sure. it is and and why why it moves you? Sure. Well, a haiku um, is an Asian form of poetry, what we call poetry, uh, and it has very we have been taught in the United States a very rigid structure of syllables, like five syllables, like a three line poem of five syllables and then seven syllables and then five syllables for the third line. Um, so I call it a haiku that we end with, but it's not really. I mean, some people, um, uh, especially when I've done this for kids, because I'm also expanding into the schools to also help clarify for teens and children their own inner tumultuousness. Um, uh, sometimes, uh, people have come away with uh, a condensed version of maybe 10 lines. Mm -hmm. Some people have come away with three words 
so it kind of ranges, you know, but, but the, the, the form is, is just, you just keep whittling it down to the essence, whittling it down to the essence. Uh, and it might be something I like to call it haiku-esque, which is you just, whatever, whatever you have, you just whittle it down until you come to that, that inner gem of, of like the core truth that you're working with. So it's, and the beautiful thing too, is that it's really not for writers, I'm putting air quotes and scare quotes around that. Um, this is really for people who also hate writing and loathe poetry. Um, because <laughs> what this is, is like, so it's like you, you get all of your inner world out on paper and then you very, I walk them through this process where you very tenderly whittle it down and reduce it down in a way that bypasses the thinking brain. Um, so you're not analyze, oh, do I, do I take out this word or put it? No, 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 no. You're actually act, operating like from your gut and your core and your intuition. And my, uh, what I tell people all the time is you don't even have to be able to explain why certain words are calling out to you to keep them. Um, if something, if a word is calling out to you, like, I don't want you to think about it. This needs to be done quickly. Um, so again, you, you're not you're not thinking, you're, you're not cognitively like dwelling on this. Um, so that by the end of it, you actually are looking at your intuitive voice speaking back to you. Um, and because of that, like I, it's, it's really liberating for people who are very intimidated by words or poetry or whatever. I'm like, this is not for publication and no one will be looking at this except for you. Although it can be if you it want to later. And absolutely, you know, it's, it's what I call feeling outside the lines. Ooh, ooh. right it's it's breaking down the structures that you've been told you must operate within I think that's a really that's something I want to deep dive today with you because as an activist as a compassionate activist as a racial activist um you know a, a post you just did recently um you were talking about burnout which mm -hmm. I think is is a lot of people would would resonate with um but the conversation, the post led to, um, out of you know what is happening right now in the country, uh, in the United States, the tragedy uh, that happened in Texas. Mm -hmm. um, and yes, gun control is so vitally important to this conversation, especially in America. But one of the things that really stood out to me about what you talked about was that violence will find its way out. Yes. And when we look at the history of school shootings in America, which mm -hmm. is the highest in the world, not that other countries haven't experienced it, but they have nipped it in the bud pretty quickly with sure. gun reform. However, violence manifests in many, many different ways. And 99.9998.5% of the perpetrators of these acts of violence are young men. And the conversation that I want to have as a man, someone who identifies as male, um, is, is mental health and the raising of young men, not only in America, but in the world. We are seeing violence manifest, even in countries that have brilliant gun control laws. It comes out in other violent yes. ways. Yes. Right? 
uh, regardless of culture, regardless mm -hmm. of how, you know, the environment, socioeconomics and all of that, there's something universal in our humanity that goes back generations in the yeah. way that we raise young men and women, of course, mm -hmm. how we provide uh, services, mental health care and services for young men and women, of course, mm -hmm. but to zero in and focus on the issue of masculinity and how it is cultivated in a certain light that that fosters often aggression and violence in the world. That's a big topic, but <laughs> I don't know if we'll be able to solve it here, but at least to get it out on the table and, and shed some It's light. a big topic and it's a topic I feel really passionate about. Um, and I'm glad you wanna sink your teeth into it because so do I. Um, also just to um, frame a little bit of my perspective, I am a, a cisgendered woman. Um, I identify with she, her pronouns. Um, and so like with the Facebook posts, um, which at this point, um, I think I posted like two days ago and then a follow-up the following day. Yep. Um, I was speaking uh, primarily about cisgendered male violence. So I just wanted to, uh, to clarify that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's rampant and it's growing and it's, I, I've been also observing from the limited standpoint I have through American media, U.S. American media, um, uh, of just, again, how you said that violence, like you take away the guns, there's still going to be violence. Um, and let's take a look at, until we really take a look at the fact that it is by and large, cisgendered men. And I would say, I mean, you said youth, male youth. I would also say male men in their middle age. Um, have oh, absolutely. Also been I, I just meant to infer that it starts in the foundation years. Sure, and sure. And it's like, it, it's just... Women, too. I, I grew up in a violent home and, and mm. you know, not being a cis male and being someone who is a little more nebulous in terms of labels altogether. Yes. Um, I don't care what people call me. He, she, I don't care. They. Sure. Um, I also see from that perspective um, the effect that those foundation years have on the development of someone who identifies as male whether they are cis, whether they are bi, yeah. whether they are gay, however they, they identify themselves, yeah. uh, trans. And, and so it, it's a much broader impact. And violence does come out and, and aggression does come out in many other than cis uh, men. And yeah. so that's why I think it's such an important conversation because thank goodness we're in a time where in... I would venture to say most of the world right now, it is safer to address these issues. Mm. There are countries in the world where it is not. It is yeah, that's really true. Life threatening yep. to uh, to speak of such things or to yep. be authentically oneself. So I just wanted to put that out there as yeah. well. That this is this is so bigger, so much bigger than cis men. And it's you're right. It's not just youth, but. What I meant to infer was that it does start in the foundation. It does, does. start in the, my grandmother used to say, honey, raising kids is like building a house. Mm. It's all about the foundation. Mm -hmm. If that foundation is weak from the beginning, that house is doomed to collapse in on itself at some point. 
Yeah. But if you have a strong foundation, you have a stronger house and you can always go back in and reinforce and fix and repair a weak foundation, but it's very time consuming, very costly. And, um, you know, why not start at the very beginning <laughs> with the healthier ways of building it? One of the ways that I would, I would love to kind of dig into this then is to start at that concept of the foundation. Um, and I realize that some people might not be all that pleased with my perspective. So if you contact me, we can have an awesome conversation and continue this conversation um, because it's certainly ongoing uh, because the problems are ongoing and deepening. Um, but I really think that we have not, we really devalue the role of fathers um, and, and what are the systemic foundational problems when we have absentee fathers or abusive fathers or emotionally absent fathers or physically absent fathers or, you know, um, all those things that happen, you know, looking at that foundational point, um, you know, myself, like, my my own father was was absent. Uh, he was he was present until my adolescence, and then absent um, uh, after that. Uh, and I so I have this this stark uh, uh, experiential lived uh, differential between like when he was there and present, and then when he wasn't. Um, and, and, you know, you think of like youth, male youth violence and you all, you, you dig a little bit and you say, okay, tell me about your relationship with your dad. And like, boom, you know, you don't have to dig very deep, you know, in order to get to, to, to what seems to me a direct correlation between the presence of fathers or not, and the health of the fathers or not, and then, um, male violence and how that's perpetrated generationally then. And that has nothing to even say with like societal messages or like, gen, you know, all, that's just the dad, you know, yeah. in the family. But well, I think that's a really important part of it. You know, there are, are you familiar with uh, the science of epigenetics? Where a little bit, I'm getting into to it. Emerge into the, into the conversation now about how we carry ancestral memory in our DNA. Yeah. And, you know, these these things, whether you are born male or female, whether you identify as male or female, you're inheriting a certain degree of dysfunction from the previous generations of your family. It's like, you know, it's like there's this very potent little vial of toxic poison that's handed to you on a royal purple velvet gold tassel down filled pillow and it's it, the mm. message is you must take this you must accept this inheritance and you must care for it and carry it and make sure that it's passed on to your next generation and so forth I, it was handed to me and I smashed it on the ground. That's, that's basically where my foundation, much to the chagrin of my parents. Um, but I think that, you know, obviously there are women who, who inherit that as well. And yes. there are violent and aggressive women who, for me, it, it boils down to what this whole podcast series is about. It's these universal life skills. Who are the people that are charged with educating their children in universal life skills like emotional literacy, sexual literacy, financial literacy, health, you know, nutrition, uh, communication skills, right? These are the, 
just the tip of the iceberg. These are all the skills that every human being on the planet, almost 8 billion now, learns in one measure or another. The question is, who's teaching those skills to children, male and female? And how equipped are they to be teaching these skills? Because they're not learning them in school. I certainly didn't. It's rare. Um, exactly. Well, well, it's interesting too, because um, my second novel, All That I Can Fix, is actually it actually tackles the father-son um, uh, dilemma of how do you how do you repair the father-son relationship when your dad has fallen off of his pedestal? Yeah. And so it's basically about a mixed race teenage son, teenage boy named Ronnie. And his dad uh, tried to uh, die by suicide and, uh, and injured himself. He survived and injured himself. But the core of the book is what happens when, yeah, when your hero falls off his pedestal and crashes into a million pieces. And Ronnie is so angry at his dad. Like, how could you try to leave us like this? Um, and, uh, and it was so wonderful. So, so the heart of the book is the father and the son finding their way back to each other in their own broken ways on both ends. And in the meantime, there's an exotic zoo breakout. And so there are literal lions on the loose. And, and actually there's a, there's a school shooting in the book too. So everything kind of really, there are panthers and there's hyenas running around. And then there's the gun control debate and the gun rights debate. Um, people shouting at each other, well, we need more guns because of all the animals. Well, no, we need the feds to come in, blah, blah, blah. And then, of course, the guns get into the schools, the school, you know, there's a school shooting. Um, and and actually, there's a there's a this this happened maybe. The book came out maybe six months before Parkland, you know, with the with the teen uh, yeah. movement against gun violence. But there is actual a scene in my novel, all that I can fix about these elementary school kids having a protest against gun violence. Wow. All this started, all this happened before the headlines broke. So it was really, really prophetic. Prophetic. Yeah, kind of, it was, it was kind of creepy. What, um, what but but I think like one of the things that has been so mm -hmm. helpful in, in life skills, um, and I do this through my books um just for me my my skill is one, one of my skills and passions is writing right and, and the written word but i think that in this world from where i stand the most important life skill i can find is finding meaning like if I can find meaning in some sort of, in some catastrophe or some, you know, like the shooting that happened in Texas or, you know, in the racism, the ongoing um, things that happened to me and my loved ones, um, uh, if I can find meaning that really increases my capacity for resilience, my capacity for my valuing of myself and others. Um, and, and then Contrarily, like when I can't find the meaning in something, um, I lose it. Like I lose, I lose the ground on which I stand, you know? And so I, I think this, this capacity, sorry? I think a lot of young people are in that position too, because finding meaning in, in, in the darkness Absolutely. is not a life skill that's generally taught. I mean, in certain circles, I suppose, religion certainly has teachings that 
are supposed to help guide. Um, right. But that's a whole other, you know, that's <laughs> another conversation. Conversation, but um, you know, I, I, I think for for a lot of people, that is where they find their meeting, and is certainly valid. Um, when we when we talk, uh, first, let me ask you about your books. Uh, is there a target uh, audience for your books, like age range, that you would recommend as a writer? Sure. So uh, Bird uh, technically is for elementary and middle school kids. Um, I say that because adults love it almost more than the kids do. In fact, um, so it's been published around the world. And one of the uh, coolest compliments I received was that there was this 60-year-old man who was so excited in Germany about the book that he climbed, the, the protagonist loves to climb trees. And so he climbed a tree, the six-year-old man climbed a tree and had his daughter take a photo of him in a tree to send to me oh. in the U.S. saying with, with a copy of my book in his hand, wow. you know, in Germany, you know, so he was a fan, right? So, um, so it kind of spans ages. And then all that I can fix um, is, uh, there's a lot of dark humor. There's a lot of swearing. Um, there's a lot of sociopolitical uh, commentary mm -hmm. in it. Um, and so it's more for teens and adults. Okay. Um, and it was a real honor when All That I Can Fix was named both um, like the best book for mental health as well as the best book for Father's Day. And so that for me was a real compliment. Obviously, I'm not, I'm not male. I'm not a man. You know, I'm, I'm yeah. cisgendered female woman. Um, and so that really spoke to um, my skill at being able to kind of tap into the male psyche. And even some of the, you know, when I, when I go into high schools and talk about the book, you know, I have this long line of teen boys waiting for me to sign their book. And many of them have said like, this is the best book I've ever read. And, um, and so that was actually how I got the teaching position as uh, as a university faculty uh, writer, uh, artist in residence, because somebody had said, like the chair of the English department got got hold of my book and was like, how did you slip into the male psyche so much? This man was maybe in his upper 50s, lower 60s. And he said, you nailed the father son relationship. And in fact, so bad that I had to put the book down a couple of times because you were talking about my relationship with my dad. Oh. And then he's like, can, can you, can you teach this to our students of like how you can slip into somebody else's shoes? And so that was how I taught that. Sometimes, course. sometimes a question like that can open whole worlds for oh my gosh. people, you know, and, and that's why it's important to recognize moments mm. because a whole world can shift in a moment. We look at times like these and Let's face it, the world has always been in chaos since yep. humans arrived on the scene or were dropped here or however we got here. <laughs> um, you know, the world has never not been in chaos. And if there's anything that I know to be true as a life skills educator, as an artist, mm -hmm. it's that we are resilient beings and we are innately creative beings. And when we can take a half step back, and recognize that with every challenge comes an opportunity, right? Yep. And then we start to self-evaluate, okay, where, where are my life skills lacking? 
What didn't I get at home? What didn't I get at school? Because you can always go and learn. You can go to a retreat. Absolutely. Uh, you can go to a workshop. You can find somebody. You can listen to these podcasts. I'm finding experts. No one's an expert in all life skills. But the people that I'm finding, very randomly in most cases, are people who have centered their lives around developing an expertise in one life skill or another or multiple yes. skills. And these are the conversations that I'm trying to be a helper in this world to help guide people toward the understanding that they're the powerful ones. Yeah. Listeners, you're all the powerful ones. You have it all in your own hands, but there's no shame in admitting that I don't have the skills I need to progress in a healthy way. So let me go find them. Let me go find an expert. Let me take a workshop. Let me talk to a mentor. Let me find the way that we're really good at that, aren't we, as humans? I love that so much. And I would also like to add for a life skill, for me as a mixed race, biracial woman in the US, um, where racism, like you can't, you can't lift a rock without finding racism. I mean, it's everywhere. Yeah. One, one of the life skills I've found in navigating this country is really finding ways to like reconnect to my humanity. Mm. And because that's white supremacy tells you that you're actually not human and you don't have a soul and you're, you have no worth and blah, 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 blah. Which also leads to burnout because like if you have no boundaries and if you have no worth, then we can of course extract everything from you without a problem. And, you know, so, but, but by like keeping in touch with my humanity and, and continuing to reinforce that on a regular basis has been really, really important for me to do a lot of things. Um, first is, is to re-educate myself and, and to keep growing because part of my humanity that I, I have found is, is to part of being human is having limits. I don't exactly what you were saying. I don't know everything. I don't have all skills. I, I had some benefits growing up. I had some setbacks growing up, you know, and like, how, how do I, uh, uh, nourish what needs to be nourished? How do I set down what needs to be set down? Um, but also that's also the human experience. Like, no, I don't have it all. And, and nor, yeah. nor will I be ashamed that I don't have it all. Right. You know, that is part of the human experience. And so I'm fine that like in really claiming my humanity, I claim my limits. And, and I think that that is a part of my own self-compassion um, in saying like, hey, like right now I cannot deal with the news headlines or I cannot deal with this relationship right now or I cannot deal with this part of this trauma triggering blah, 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 blah. I am a human being. I have limits. And that's that's part of the human experience. And so um, I actually come together regularly. Speaking of retreats, um, I don't just do retreats. I call together also care communities, what I call care communities. Um, and part of some of the many care communities um, is just like a one-on-one -on -one with a friend of mine and every, she's a woman of color and we meet every week to talk about the white supremacy and racism that we've had to endure this past week. And it's a very, uh, it's a wonderful supportive way for us to name it and then to put it down uh, and to do it in, in community, a small community of one-on-one, -on -one, uh, but where it's not, it's not, you're not alone in this and we get to reinforce each other. 
Um, and so, and actually from, from that men's uh, conversation that I've been hosting on Facebook the other day um, of white men and, and anger and things like that, there is actually, there are a couple of white men who said like, I would be kind of interested in coming together in community with other white men uh, so that we can give each other some strength and solidarity and just kind of like acknowledge the shit together. I don't it's know a little scary. That. The thought of that is a little scary to me. <laughs> they named that too. They named that too. They're like, and there's a huge, there's a huge current against that because it feels so feminizing and it feels like talk therapy. And I don't really want to do that. Um, so we, yeah, uh, we had a, a wonderful conversation on Facebook about, about like all of the different ways it, that our culture trains us to not connect with each other. And when we are not connected, we are weaker, even though there's this, you know, I am an island, I can pull myself up by my bootstraps. Balance, pain mitigation, range of motion, athletic performance, focus, memory, immune system support, and REM level of sleep. All this and more made possible affordably with no pharmaceuticals, no injections, or invasive treatments. Just socks, insoles, and patches made stronger with the tactile patterning of Vox Life products. Scientifically proven to work and guaranteed. Now in the USA, Canada, and the UK, Visit www.dianedinkmeyer.voxlife.com. That's Vox, V-O-X-X, life. You'll be glad you did. Your generous sponsorship and individual support of the Lost Traveler podcast benefits the Lost Travelers Club, a charitable project under the fiscal sponsorship of United Charitable, a nonprofit 501c3 organization. The Lost Travelers Club focuses primarily on the needs of parents who have outlived their beloved children. We recently launched our new Brain Candy Project Wing, providing art supplies to children still struggling with critical or terminal health-related conditions. We hope to raise enough funds to launch Brain Candy, an arts and literature magazine created by and for these young people. Find out more at www.braincandy.online. Thank you. The one, okay, so the one thing that in one, in one question, I feel like I just totally like, I hate the bootstraps myth because number one is a myth. It's not true. My response to the bootstraps myth is, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can do it all by yourself. Mm -hmm. Who made the boots? That's right. Not you. You are connected whether you want to be or not. And whether we say you're connected or not, those boots are not yours. Somebody made those boots. So you might think that you're doing everything by yourself, but actually you are connected. Uh, to a broader society, to a broader community, to a broader system, again, whether you want to be or not. Well, we are all connected. That's the point. You know, when we when we're having these important conversations about race in new ways, in ways that we have not yet met 
And we are, you're right, it's so messy and we're trying to find our way and navigate. People will look at me and they will point at me and say, you're a white man. And I, that, that brings me back to when my ancestors immigrated to America and the different races were separated as Irish, Italian, Hebrew, yeah. African, Asian or whatever, right? So, so where where does where does this new idea of race and division come into the conversation today? I've been doing a lot of studying on my own genealogical path of my mm. ancestors, my own DNA, and I've been able to deep dive back into my African roots. Uh, I know the tribes in Kenya and in, in Tanzania. Mm. Uh, that that I sprung from thousands of years ago that my ancestors, my people came from. I have a couple of birthmarks that are just, you know, patches of melanin on my skin. And my grandmother, who's, you know, Eastern European, Romanian Jew, uh, she said, that's what's left of your Africa. Mm. Now, I don't get followed around when I walk into a store. I don't, I, I've lived in a world of privilege uh that wasn't always the case with jewish americans sure uh it had a lot to do with with the state of of the world when i was born right there was a time when jews were not allowed into white society into the country clubs into the stores and and social cliques and and things like that and because European Jews are fairer skinned. That was sort of the, the shield. That was the, the, the way for us to get in. And I think that the, the culturally a big mistake, and I've talked about this a lot, uh, at large, of course, not all Jews did this. And, and there were many, many Jewish people who were at the forefront of the civil rights movement, you know, linking arms as they should have been. But so many did not say thank you for allowing me into the club. But you know what? I'm not going to come in unless everybody gets to come in. Yeah. Right. So I think we all bear a certain responsibility to how far things have come, how we identify now in the world. And again, given the privilege that I had of growing up globally, I don't feel like an American citizen. I am an American citizen, but I feel like a global citizen. And I have brothers and sisters of every shade, of every culture, in every part of the planet. And so I, I tend to, I tend to look at it a little more broadly from a, a, a human. We're all from Africa lens, you know, mm. even though we don't experience it the same way. That's so how true. Do, how do we get back to experiencing it the same way and and guiding one another and ourselves toward toward a broader lens, if that's even possible? Hmm. Not to put you on the spot. With that. No, no. I mean that's <laughs> that's kind of the question, right? I mean, how as how a biracial we... person, do you find that 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 your the different races that you uh, emerge from in your ancestry mm -hmm. 
do those cultural backgrounds color your experience? Oh, absolutely. With racism and yeah. how do you navigate that? Yeah, um, uh, the, it, it systemically colors my experience with yeah. racism in the United States. Um, I'm also recognizing that racism might look different in other countries. Um, so, or manifest itself in other countries. So I'm speaking primarily for US racism, which is yeah. what I am unfortunately, fortunately or unfortunately most familiar with. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, my dad is a Hong Konger. My mom is um, of, I think she's 100% uh, Polish, uh, Polish immigrant, like through her, through her family line, uh, Polish American. Um, and your, your listeners can't see me, but I look very ambiguous, um, and many times can pass more for Latina than, mm -hmm. than anything. And, and often do like, I walk into a, a Mexican restaurant and people, the, the work staff work come up to me and they speak, um, to me in, in Spanish and it helps that I know Spanish, uh, Spanglish. Right. So, um, so I, I oftentimes pass, um, and it's it's an ongoing dialogue of my own racial identity as opposed to like what seems to be a very fixed and stagnant racial conversation in the United States. Yeah. Um, because my my lived experience of race is that it is fluid and it is always fluid. Yeah. And that uh for where I stand and my life experience, I think it will be fluid until the day I die. Um, for instance, um, when I go into any room, uh, people will see me how they wish to see me. Uh, white people choose to see me as white. They like to call me Crystal. Uh, POC choose to see me as uh, Asian. They call me Mason, my Chinese name. Um, it says more about them than it does about me. And I've, I've started to learn that, like however people choose to react to me. Um, Latinas, Latinas or Latinx uh, choose to see me as Latina. Um, some people even call me Greek or Russian, which I have no idea because I have a very Asian nose. I'm like, I don't I know. Really Listen, have... people look at me and they think they think I'm Ara Saudi Arabian or Syrian or, right. you know, even even Indian. And right. um, and I'm none of those things in my DNA. I don't even have even though all my family came from Eastern Europe on both sides. I have no Eastern European DNA. For real, though, it is. It's Roman and Central European, mm. but those stories have been lost, right? Being that it's it's so part of your present persona as you navigate as an artist, as a teacher, as a person in the world. I noticed that in your books, you you don't use your Chinese name. Correct. Well, my my Mason, my Chinese name has been a new emergent part of my identity. Um, uh, I would say I started to claim and go by Mason maybe as recently as two or three years ago uh, when I realized like I I have like I am constantly in a in a state of racial flux. The people who see me don't know this because I've already adapted to them, even upon the approach. I walk into a room, people want to see me as POC. Okay, I can put that hat on. People want to see me as white. It's a survival mechanism. I don't like it. I, you know, I'm forced into this for my own self-preservation. 
you know? And so it was kind of like, where, where is space for my, my externalized racialized self? And so what I see is like, sometimes I go by Mason, sometimes I go by Crystal. When I, when, um, you know, for my uh, activism and uh, social media, I will oftentimes go by Crystal for my spiritual direction and my retreats, self-care. I oftentimes go by Mason. Uh, sometimes when they overlap, I use both. I go by Crystal Mason, call me CM, you know, that kind of a thing. And yeah. for me, I find that to be exceptionally liberating and healing because it's like, People, I'm monoracial people get really confused and, and anxious, like, oh, I'm going to call you the wrong name at the wrong time or wrong context. And in some ways that feels so right. I mean, not that I'm happy that they're anxious or whatever, but it's like that they're monoracial folks. <laughs> one of my mixed race friends called them the monos, the monos. I don't mean that, but the monos, like, it's like I'm fi- like they are finally starting to experience the type of identity anxiety that is always with me at all times about like uh, what what am I going to put on at this specific moment to make me be safest at this moment um, and and the and but it's except in this way it's no longer out of fear it's more of like i'm reclaiming myself like i am i am right. both i am You're one cool. i am the other i am both um and so and if and if monos feel anxious at this that's okay because i am just i am externalizing the identity process through my names i am externalizing that that has always been an internalized journey but now they see it now and they hear it now in the form of my name and my Chinese characters, the Romanized letters. Um, and in that way, it's a part of educating the monoracial folks about the fluidity of what this is like when I'm constantly putting on different hats. Absolutely. And, you know, this is this is so important right now in our time where fluidity is emerging as a natural state of being for all yeah. humans. Yeah. that it is not set in stone. There really is no monochrome in the world. True. It's not anymore. <laughs> um, maybe there was at one time, but- Maybe. You know, and I would even argue maybe, ne- maybe never really. I you know. tried to be created, right? To keep people divided and superior, sure. inferior. But, um, but we see it now even with gender. Yeah. And it's, it, it's, it's echoing the same- resonance for me as people who are saying who are claiming for themselves this is how I identify and I get to call the shots as to how people recognize me in the world yes and if they have a question what do you prefer to be called they can ask and you can teach them you can tell them right it's as simple as that people try to make it so complex but they overcomplicate things don't you think Absolutely. And I think too, the part for me that is so liberating in terms of my identity. Um, and do I call you Crystal or my son or Crystal my son or you know, whatever? I am no longer feeling the need to apologize. Right. 
and and like oh well you know you know apologizing for what hat i'm putting on at what time or what name or this and it's or apologizing for their discomfort or trying to like maneuver to make them more comfortable it's like if you feel uncomfortable that's that's your own journey <laughs> you know so down to the individual that's also yes. down to the individual choice i don't think it's any longer a broad spectrum cultural phenomenon it's not like the 50s and 60s where right. all we where there was no representation. Right. Right. Whether you were Asian or Black or Jewish or, you know, Indian or, or whatever, Native American, Indigenous, you, there was no representation at all. Now we have representation. Right? Well, we have growing representation. But it's and like, there. for instance, for yeah. me within the United yeah. States, the thing that that hurts, you know, and I, I know like, uh, my viewpoint is mine alone, right? I'm not speaking for anybody else, but um, you know, in, in the in the U.S. Census, the most recent census, um, the Asian community is the fastest growing community in the United States. Um, mixed race Asian children are are one of the highest growing demographics of, of children being born, um, and yet we're still saying. And again, I apologize. Maybe maybe I don't apologize. I don't apologize for you know if this makes people feel. Actually, I don't apologize for people. Yeah. This makes people. But something to think about. Something to think about um, is that we are still saying black and brown communities. That's right. Where is the Asian in this? Like, why do I still have to erase myself even within POC communities? Why right. don't I get named? Like even, and I'm not even talking mixed race Asian, I'm just talking Asians. Why is, why is the Asian part? And this is so ubiquitous in our country um, where we say white communities and then black and brown. Black and brown people need to be acknowledged. Absolutely. I absolutely like, I will fight for that. And, and where's the Asian community being recognized? Why are we folded into brown? Um, right. And my skin is not brown. It's not close to brown. Um, why are we not being recognized? So when you say like th there's a higher visibility, in some ways there's a higher visibility. And yet there's this huge like elephant in the living room, even within the POC community. Like, can we talk about Asian communities here? Can we be recognized? Like that's really painful when, and then at the same turn in the next breath, my black and brown siblings will say, oh, Maison, but you're, you're, you know, we are your family. You're one of us. And it's like, well, then I'm the invisible family member. You're the middle child. You know, like, let's, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Shadow and Light LLC was established by Dave Roberts and Reverend Patty Farino, co-authors of When the Psychology Professor Met the Minister. Their mission is to empower individuals to transcend life challenges by integrating spiritual practices with psychology to achieve peace. They are available for individualized spiritual counseling, virtual or in-person presentations and workshops to universities, organizations, and other interested groups, virtual or in-person book club meetings. For further information, go to psychologyprofessorandminister.com. No, it's so important, and and it's it's a it's a layer of this of the spectrum that I hope we are moving toward not having to talk about that at all and really recognize our universality as Homo sapiens. That's our race, that's our species. 
We are homo sapiens, all of us. We all bleed, we all long, we all love, we all feel, you know, and yeah. th that's my dream. That's not only my dream, but I, I, I would love to see a day emerge when all of these, the alphabet soup hmm. is erased, whether it's BIPOC or LGBTQ plus or whatever categories, whatever boxes we keep trying to shove people into. I have black friends who don't identify necessarily with Africa as their root. So to be called an African-American, mm -hmm. it hits them in a certain frequency that doesn't feel true or comfortable sure. for them. My, I have no relatives from Africa. They all came from the Caribbean, right? Or, or you know, and I'm sure it, it's the same and, and even more complex with mixed race yeah. folk. And so when, when, and this is a question for you, when do you see that being transcended where we can just look into one another's eyes as fellow human beings and say, mm. I see you for who you are as an individual, what you're bringing to the table, not the color of your skin, not your cultural ancestry or the geography of your, what part of the country you live in even? That's a great question. My gut reaction is that we will, I'm not sure if we can transcend it. Um, I think we can make progress, like a critical part of the progress is when we really take a deep dive within and say to ourselves and answer for ourselves the question, how much am I willing to sacrifice so that that vision can be possible? because that vision will not just happen. There is no magic wand. Um, I have racism in myself. I have sexism in myself. I have all the things within me. And I mean, I, I've been in therapy for at least 15 years. I know how hard it is to change myself. And that's when I want to change, right? And that's just me as one individual. And we're talking about societal and global. It's like, hello, how much, how much are we willing to sacrifice? How uncomfortable are we will, how, how willing are we to die to our old paradigms? How willing are we to be um, not even severely uncomfortable? How willing are we, you know, going to put ourselves on the line to sacrifice? Because this status quo is not just going to go away. And I think there's a lot of people out there who think it will just by the well-wishing, just like the well-wishing of like, oh, well, these school shootings are so bad. Let's just not think about it. And maybe they'll just stop. Right. Or, you know, this misogyny or like these trans kill people, killings of trans people, that's just so bad. But maybe if we just, maybe they'll just stop, you know, and that's actually what has allowed all of this to fester is by inaction of well-wishingness. Um, well, and it's and also been been a very, very deliberate media-driven sure. and who's behind the media uh, messaging that goes out mm -hmm. to the broad public. And it starts in early childhood. Sure. All of these teachings. And I think you hit the nail on the head when you talk about 
it comes down to the individual. It's not going to be a broad societal thing. I cannot be personal res personally responsible for the actions of any other human being on the planet, but I can be personally responsible for my own actions, my own words, my own deeds in the world and the way that I treat others, right? And so I think this is why my call, the, the hill that I want to die on, is life skills education, mm. universal life skills education. What do I need to ramp up? What do I already have proficiency in that I can maybe show others just by doing it, just by being it, being authentically who I am in this moment, where I am? Because if anyone has an opportunity to witness your authenticity as messy as it is and mm -hmm. my authenticity as messy, messy as it is, they effortlessly automatically have permission to do the same, to go on that journey. They may have a different skill to learn, but permission is a powerful thing. And I think it's in the individual recognition of responsibility. And so many of us, don't have those skills to be able to even recognize that it's about that and not about culture, not about government, not about religion, not about spirituality, not about gender identity or sexual orientation or preference. It's all about you as an individual. And I think when we start seeing ourselves as a whole person, in this moment, right? Because I know I can't be any different than I am right now. That expression, nobody's perfect, hmm. has come up in my life more times than I care to <laughs> give it about. The first time I remember I was in fourth grade and I had drawn a picture and my teacher came up and I didn't like it. I crumpled it up and I threw it across the room. I was sitting there with my arms crossed and a little storm cloud over my head. <laughs> And Mrs. Ardeline, my teacher, came up and put her hand on my shoulder and she said, oh, Henry, nobody's perfect. And I looked up at her and I was like, what? <laughs> Mrs. Ardeline, how can I be any different than I am right now? Hmm. And doesn't, mean, doesn't that mean I'm as perfect as I can be right now? She didn't get it, but I still get it. <laughs> I'm 56. And I still believe that you're as perfect, we are as perfect as we can be in this moment. Who knows what the next moment holds, mm. right? We can't go back and change anything that's gotten us to this moment, but everything prior to this moment has led to this conversation, you and me and whoever's listening. So true. Right? Everything. And we've survived it all. Everything that the world has thrown at us whether it's misogyny or racism or poverty has gotten us to this moment. And if we authentically love ourselves in this moment or find things to love about ourselves and recognize our wholeness and our perfection in this moment, that's the springboard for even better tomorrows. Yeah. Right. Sorry to go off on a, <laughs> on a thing, but you know that's what this whole conversation inspires me. Because you're you're saying it all. This journey that you're on, um, 
it's going to resonate with so many people and mm -hmm. does, I'm sure. Hi, I'm Yvonne Johansson, and this is My Little House. My Little House is an interactive, multi-sensory, educational felt toy that I invented to help develop children's language skills. I love my little house. I've been working as a speech therapist for over 20 years. So then I just thought, wouldn't it be great if I could just take this one-dimensional board and make it into an actual three-dimensional toy? How cool would that be? That's the idea behind My Little House. You can spread it out flat like a four-panel felt board, or here's the cool part. In the blink of an eye, My Little House easily converts into a three-dimensional reversible house. My Little House comes with 36 felt cutout pieces that match outlines in eight colorful rooms. And they're felt, so they stick. Each piece inside My Little House has been placed with purpose. But My Little House isn't just for kids on the spectrum or with significant disorders. It's also for typically developing two to five-year-olds. It's a fun toy. I always say to my kids, when you get stuck, you have to ask for help. Can you tell me what you see on top of the refrigerator? I know that My Little House is going to make a difference in thousands of children's lives. I just need your help in getting it out there. Thank you so much for listening. For more information about My Little House, My Little Farm, My Little Zoo, and other Smart Felt Toys, visit www.smartfelttoys.com. Tell me about, give me, give me three practical tools, life skills, practical tools that, that you know that have worked for you that maybe a listener who doesn't quite have those particular skills can walk away with and apply mm. or try. Wow, so good, so good. Putting me on the spot, let me see. Yeah. <laughs> all right, all right. Um, I think that a really important life skill at least in the United States. And I think in some other countries as well that are um, increasingly polarized, uh, you know, a number of European countries. And honestly, our whole Everywhere. world, what, like this is, this is, this is, okay. So this applies to a lot of us, my siblings. Yeah, um, uh, and, it, and it might be kind of like the new curse word or, or the, the, the taboo. Um, I'm going to say it anyway, is humility. Mm. I think humility is really important because the fact is like, yeah, I'm, I'm a justice activist. I'm a compassion activist. I'm also human and I don't know everything and I'm going to say the wrong things and I'm going to use wrong terminology and because I'm human, um, and I'm not going to know it all. I'm going to make mistakes. And I think there's this thing about if, if I am a completely full and complete human being, then, then that means like, if, if I mess up, like, what does that mean about my fullness and my completeness? You know? So there's, this, there's this, there's this conversation, this ongoing conversation between like me being valuable. I can be so valuable and so precious and still really mess up. Like those, those, those are not exclusive. And I think having this 
if our country had just even 10% more humility, um, I think so much of our conversations would change. Our, our, the ways that we mess up, the ways that we reconcile with each other would change. The door to possibilities would be open just a little bit more. And we would be having different kinds of conversations when we lead, not just, you know, like, so the United States, we, we see arguments as a war, right? You, and it, it, it penetrates our, our, our vocabulary. We build a defense. We vanquish the, you know, I mean, like everything that we do, we, we build an offense, we attack the person. We just, in our vocabulary, our, we see arguments as a war, right? Which of course, I mean, it's no surprise that we act like it then, right? Yeah. Um, and that people actually do die from these, these types of arguments. Right. Um, if we approach things though, with a greater sense of humility, um, not to say that we're accepting what the other person is saying, right. um, but, but also just to say like, I have weaknesses too. I have areas that I don't understand too. I have, I don't know what the non-ableist word, but my own blind spots. Um, I, I have things that I don't see and recognize too. I hold my own brokenness too. Um, and I think that is really critical, no matter where you are, no matter what kind of job you have or don't have, or will never have, or have right now, or whatever, what sort of relationships you're in. Um, having that type of humility, I think is a real door opener to possibilities because without humility, you close that door. How does one get there? If they don't, if they don't have it, I think we're all born with it, but we lose it. How, how, how does one get back to humility? Mm, in a healthy way. And I don't mean that you put yourself down or like, oh, I'm shit. You know, I'm not worth yeah. anything. Like that's false. That's no, not like I said, you're as perfect as you can be right now, but sure. it doesn't mean you don't have anything to learn. Sure. Right? <laughs> we're all teachers. Sure. We're all students. But how does one go start on that journey toward finding their own humility? Like a true spiritual humility that's, that's grounded in your worth. I think... For me, a big part of my grounding in like healthy humility that enables me to fail and it enables me to like make mistakes. And then I don't think that the world is coming to an end. And then I don't think that I'm a piece of garbage, you know, like, like healthy humility is really grounding myself in my full humanity, my full humanity. And, and also understanding that, and this is where my spirituality comes in. So, um, I, consider myself to be spiritual, but not religious. I used to be Catholic. I have Catholic roots and Buddhist roots and things like that. But um, I, I really do think like connecting, like understanding that I'm connected to something greater and, and, and intrinsically beautiful and intrinsically that is love. Like when I'm connected to that and when that connection is solid and in like that is, is the secure attachment part of me to like the numinous that actually means I can be as small as small can get. And I am still so valuable, which means I can make mistakes and I can still be valuable. which means like the world isn't going to fall apart if I make a wrong decision or if I end this relationship and I made the wrong decision in that relationship, like that's okay. Get up, pick yourself up, move on because guess what? You are still valuable. Or if like, if somebody says, well, I disagree with you, if like if you get, if I get all sorts of emails from people like, oh, Mason, I totally disagreed with you on this podcast and blah, 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 blah. You know, like having that humility says like, 
okay, thank you for showing me like another perspective that I haven't recognized. I'm not in that place of defensiveness because my existential self is grounded in my own worth and preciousness. Does that make sense? It does. Complete sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Give me another one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. And I think, I think again, like for me, one of the things that has been so important in the constant repair work from white supremacy, because, you know, it comes in all the time, right? I I see, I see it as, you know, uh, for like the care retreats that I'm putting on and whatever, I think that it's a real fallacy um, to think that we need to address racism, sexism, misogyny, white supremacy, like, and a one and done. It, it's like, this is, this needs to be ongoing work. It's, I liken it as to like, what would it be like if you never took out the garbage? Like, imagine what your house would smell like. Imagine the critters, imagine like the disgustingness. That's what is happens on the inside of our souls when we do not take out the garbage of white supremacy on a regular basis. This needs to happen on a regular, regular basis. And not only that, I mean, if you do that by yourself, I, I can guarantee you and ground yourself in your full humanity on a regular basis, I guarantee you, you will feel the effects of this, like in a good, positive way. Even better if you can have even just one person to do that with you on a regular basis, where you both reground you. Know, so it's not just you, you know, because it's it's a it's a big it's a heavy current, it's a strong current. To really like find a community of even just one other person who shares that desire with you, to take out the garbage every. I mean, I I do that weekly, and you know, every week there's we fill up an hour and a half of our time just two people talking about the white supremacy that we have encountered this week, and that is a life skill of like claiming our humanity on a regular basis. Because the moment I walk out my door, it's 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 attacked by humanity, you know. And so like that constant reinforcement. Um, by my, by myself. And then when I don't have the inner fortitude or strength or bandwidth to do that, to have that be given to me as a gift by other people in my community. I feel that care that's community really that important. About, yeah. yeah. Those care communities are find really your care community. I love find it, maintain it, connect with it. I don't care if it's uh virtual in person. I mean, this one person I connect, it's, it's virtual. I've never met her in real life. Um, I think at this point, I would say that's not even a totally necessary thing. Um, and, and it can be actually liberating to connect over distance. So, um, so yeah, I, I think connecting with your full, however that is, I think that's critical, especially in this world. Um, and, and again, I will go back to like finding meaning, you know, the world is burning up and melting down at the same time. Okay. Like, and on top of this, youth are, at a, I feel so bad. Uh, like it's, it is my duty. Okay. So I'm 42 years old. When I, I grew up in an age where there were no school shootings um, at all. It was just not a thing. Um, I consider it to be my duty to the younger generations here and the future generations to help give them tools to face the world that they will need to face. Um, and Yes, we're all individuals, but I also live within a collective and it is my duty to the collective generation, future generations. Um, that's why I write the books that I write. Uh, that's why I'm giving these retreats. Um, 
as well as I, you know, I'm doing spiritual direction one-on-one so that when people want to take a deep dive and like, what is the meaning of this? Like adults don't give a shit about gun. They say they do, but what is actually being done? Nothing. And we know how this will end. We know how this chapter will end. Children are watching. Children are watching, you know, and, and the rates of youth anxiety and depression are through the roof. Of course they are because they are human beings with limits. Right. And so like, what, what kind of world are we giving them? Um, And I think like so much of like finding that inner resilience, the foundation of that inner resilience is finding that meaning. What is the meaning in this? What is your personal meaning? How are you personally finding meaning in these times? What is your purpose in these times? How are you walking that path of purpose in these times? Um, And then in in a collective sense, what is the collective meaning? Because again, we're not only individuals. We are individuals placed within a larger, broader context of society and community. Like what is the communal meaning here? And I think having, I, I find that like a, like a tether, like an umbilical cord, like a, like a, like a life raft, you know, in these tumultuous waters, mm-hmm. we have to be able to find the meaning. You know, if you can find the meaning, you can go through a lot. You can endure a lot. Um, and without that tether, man, it's a rough ride. So I would say those three things, humility, claiming your full humanity and uh, finding, and then remaining connected to your deepest meaning, I think would be, uh, you know, and as you know, like it's nothing that's really taught in school, you know? So, um, so these things are all like, you know, in the trenches of life. Um, but I would say those are the things that have helped me the most. And those are tools that, that every parent of children, every Mm. family member, every teacher of children can take with them. You know, it's like, that tether it starts with you at the center and then it's your immediate circle your family Mm. and then it's your maybe it's your school or your your community locally and then it's your state and then it's your country and then it broadens and broadens and broadens until it envelops the entire world and I think that that's that for me you're you're absolutely right it hits it hits all the boxes, you know, it, it ticks all the boxes, as they say in England, um, <laughs> of, of process. It is a process. Nobody's going to have a, an epiphany in a moment that's going to change the entire world in an instant. But it starts with the individual and then it has a ripple effect. Yeah. Right. I am so happy to have had this conversation. This hour plus has just flown by. (laughs) Um, Again, listeners, I will put all of the pertinent information and uh, how to reach our wonderful guest in the description, along with a bio, a general bio and links. So um, thank you. Thank you so much for your time, for your energy and your wisdom. And uh, let's do this again sometime. I would love it. This was a fantastic conversation. You got me all wrapped up too. Yay. Good. <laughs> That's what I hope to do. You've been listening to season three of the Lost Traveler podcast with your host, Henry Cameron Allen. Visit me online at www.henryallen.org. 
Thank you to all my guests and thank you to my listeners all around the world. I couldn't do this without your support. Let's keep striving for a better world together.